Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 33, where in today's podcast, I will be talking about the decision to place a loved one into a facility, and if that decision is made, how do you check out and evaluate a memory care unit? But before I dive into the podcast, I want to let all of my awesome listeners know that I have an amazing free resource, 15 Strategies to Help People Living with Dementia Who Tell You They're Fine and Refuse Help. This is an amazing compilation of all of the strategies that I teach and use, and you can get it for free. Simply go to my website, makedementiayourbitch.com. You will land on the page and you can get your copy today. This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Now, there may come a point where placement is something that you need to do. And it's a highly individual decision because I had a colleague who said, everybody can sing, not everybody's a singer. Everybody can care, not everyone is a caregiver. But in this society, if you are a spouse or an adult child, you become the default caregiver. In some cases, it works out really well. In other cases, it doesn't. And just because you opt for placement doesn't mean, it it absolutely doesn't mean you failed or it was a failure, especially if there's a mismatch between the personality of the care recipient and the personality of the care provider. If the relationship is difficult, if there's a mismatch, then Placement is often the kindest and safest option for all involved. And I've seen situations where the person living with dementia did better going into an assistant living or a nursing home than when they were at home because the caregiver had their own physical health issues. The caregiver maybe was not prepared to to be a caregiver or they had small children, or they had other things going on. So the next question is, do we use an assistant living or a nursing home? And I have people who say things like, oh, I promised my mom I would never put her in a nursing home, so I found an assistant living. Okay, that's fine, but here's something to realize. Assistant livings are not regulated by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They are regulated by the state which means the quality of assistant livings vary heavily from state to state. So in Alabama, if you serve people living with dementia, you get the designation special care assistant living. And what that means is it's locked. You have ways to prevent people leaving the facility. And I hate to be that blunt about it, but that's 
how Alabama classifies assisted livings. And they really, they do mandate this dementia education training from the Dementia Education Training Act or DITA. That content was developed and last updated in 2002. So what is there is highly outdated. And in some case, cases, it's flat out wrong, which is a problem. And also cost can be an issue because oftentimes assisted livings will market themselves as less expensive than traditional nursing homes. Maybe, but as your person needs more care, the assisted living then starts to upsell. They'll say, oh, now your dad needs this or your mom needs that. We can do it, but it's gonna be an extra 500 a month. And, and next thing you're paying more than if you had a, if you had gone the nursing home route. The other issue to think about is spending down. If you're concerned about your loved one outliving their resources, nursing homes will accept Medicaid payment. In Alabama, assisted livings do not. Now in other states, you do have assisted livings that will, that participate, they're part of the Medicaid program. Because again, Medicare does not pay for nursing home care. Medicare pays for skilled nursing services for up to 90 days after a hospitalization. That's where people get confused. They're like, when mom, you know, fell and she was in the hospital, Medicare paid for her to go to Fairhaven or Wood or, or one of the facilities. And she was there for a while and, and then she got stronger. We took her home. That's for a finite time and for specific services. So what you may want to think about is if you do go the assisted living route, you may want the assisted living to be part of what's called a continuing care retirement community where there are multiple levels. And Fairhaven, St. Martin's of the Pines, those are two examples where you have an entity that has everything from independent living to skilled care and rehab. They do it all. That's just something to think about. Now, let's say you're looking at a facility. How do you vet these places? You're going to call up, you're going to go on to nursing home compare, take a look, check in with friends and families, but ultimately you're going to go and tour the place. And usually the person who takes you on the tour, I call them the tour guide, it's usually somebody from marketing. And their job is to sell you on putting your loved one or placing your loved one in this facility. That's how they make their money. So some questions to ask. You can ask the tour guide, tell me about the unit manager and staff. Please describe their education, experience, and training of whoever's in charge of the memory care unit. Because you would think, because a unit is called memory care, they would have people who have specialized education and training for dementia care. Nope. I've walked into memory cares and the person running it had an MBA, period. They were strictly a business person didn't have the foggiest about what to do with the person living with dementia. And I won't mention who it was, but I've been invited when different facilities build their memory care unit or they add one. And I took a tour 
And this one facility was so excited because they had an aromatherapy room. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, whoever designed this knows Jack about dementia because oftentimes with Alzheimer's, you have a part of the brain called the enterorhinal complex. That's also the part of the brain that connects the cells in the nerve to the parts of the brain that decodes and tells you what you're smelling. That area of the brain shrinks and doesn't work real well. So having all these scents to calm them down may not work if you don't have the part of the brain that connects the nose smells to the olfactory part of the brain. And I, I, I just kept it to myself. I just went, oh boy, this is bad. And so you want someone who's running this memory care unit to either be a nurse with at least a bachelor's degree or someone in an aging related field with a graduate degree, someone who maybe has a, who has a degree in social work and gerontology. They need to have some type of educational preparation and experience. You want to ask about turnover or better yet longevity, because if you ask about turnover, people tend to not answer that question. But if you say, tell me, what's the average time that your employees have worked in memory care unit? Because I'm thinking of one facility where people would transfer to work in the dementia care unit and they wouldn't leave. They would stay there forever. The nurse manager was there for 15 years. You had quite a few of the staff that were there for decades. It was wild. The rest of the facility turnover was rapid, but not the memory care unit. It was really interesting. Now, if you're asking these questions and you're being deflected or you're getting experiences better than education or, oh, we just have all these nat people with natural ability. That's a red flag. That's a euphemism for, yeah, we didn't train and we don't care. The second question to ask is, what is the ratio of direct care staff to the residents? Like I talked about before, lower is better. You want one to five, and that's way better than one to eight or one to 10. And do the ratios change depending on shifts? That always blew my mind because I worked night shift and there were times that night shift was a lot busier than evening shift. Even though people are supposed to be sleeping, they're not. And that always blew my mind in hospitals because in hospitals, you have critically ill people and they don't magically get better on the 11 to seven shift. They're still critically ill and you still have to take the blood pressure, draw the, I, uh, that, that whole, oh, it's night shift. Really? Anyway, sorry about the rant, but you want to ask about that and you want to ask about weekends versus weekdays. Because here's the other thing, it's weekends and you have a skeleton crew. Why? The person living with dementia doesn't know the difference between Tuesday and Saturday. Their needs are consistent regardless of the day of the week. So lower staffing on weekends, to me, never made sense. Does the facility use contract or agency staffing? If so, when, how often? I had one nursing home that was part of my mouth care study, and we noticed our care-resistant behaviors went, they skyrocketed on weekends. We actually noticed, it was my mouth care providers who said, I hate working weekends, not because I hate working weekends, the behaviors are off the chain. What we found out was this particular unit had nobody who worked dedicated weekends. All of their staff had Monday through Friday positions. So on the weekends, they hired agency staff. 
these and and it wasn't like some facilities have called we called it the Baylor program back in the old days where I remember in the 1980s and early 90s I could work every weekend at the hospital on a specific unit and I was paid for 40 hours I worked two 12s so I basically worked for 24 hours and got paid I didn't get paid for 40 I got paid for 32 and I got benefits so I was like this is cool because that's the that's how they were able to staff on weekends. So if they're using agency staffing on weekends, but it's the same people, that's not so bad. Often what happens is, and this was happening in, in this one facility, every weekend you had a brand new crew who didn't know the residents, didn't know what was going on, and it was a mess. So that's a question to ask. How are call-ins handled? And then look for other indicators of staffing. Look at the cleanliness of the residents. Just because you don't smell urine or yucky odors doesn't mean it's clean. You look at their hair, faces, hands, fingernails, and clothing. The more residents you notice with unbrushed hair, I call them the eye boogers, unwashed, unshaved faces, their hands are dirty, the fingernails are a mess, the clothing is stained, that's a problem. And if you say, I noticed some of your residents look really disheveled. Yeah, we can't do anything about that because they refuse care. No, that's a red flag. Because staff who make such a statement demonstrate they don't know and understand care refusal behavior. They don't know how to handle it. And they're just going to leave the person. They're just going to just let them sit there. So that's some stuff that is good to know if you are in a position where you have to look at placement. Okay, so let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I will proceed with more questions to ask when you are evaluating a memory care unit. is what are the day-to-day -day activities? Who develops them and who actually implements them? The correct answer is you want a recreational therapist. You want a dedicated person and that is a real thing. I went to school with people who were recreational therapists when I was doing some of my gerontology courses and these are individuals who know how to develop activities that they can personalize and help promote cognitive and functional ability versus, oh, we have a full-time activity person. It's one of the nursing assistants. Uh, she hurt her back. So now she's our activity director. Okay. I, I, that I've seen that. So you, that's something to, to ask about. And also how are the activity deep, how are the activities personalized and what are the details? If you're hearing a lot of bingo and, activities that are more uh, stereotypically for female residents and you have a male family member, that's going to be a problem because your male family member is going to be bored and is not going to benefit from the activities. You also want to observe the interactions between staff and residents to figure out how engaged are the staff with day-to-day -day activities. Are the staff interacting with the residents or are they off to the side interacting with each other? 
And the next question is, what happens when residents need more help? If like right now, my mom can do all these things for herself. What happens when she needs more help? If my mom needs help with eating, is there a smaller dining area where staff are there to off cut up food and offer assistance? What about bowel and bladder training? Is this something you do? Because even if a person is incontinent, you still need to put them on the commode because they may be incontinent because they're holding it in and they never get to the commode. So simply changing a brief instead of assisting onto a toilet or bedside commode reinforces incontinence and increases bladder infection risk. How much notice or assistance do you get if another level of care is deemed to be necessary? And also do the prices increase with care needs? Because when assisted living's first propped up in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a pretty cool niche market because you had two options, living at home or a nursing home. You went from zero to 30. There was nothing in the middle for people who needed some assistance, but really didn't need the amount of assistance offered by a nursing facility. Assistant livings filled that gap, but they were designed for a specific need. And once the person required more help, the expectation was they would then transition to a nursing home environment. What the assisted living started to do was they started adding price increases so that they could keep the person living with dementia there. And it got to the point where some people in assisted living were actually, the families were paying more for the same services they could also get in a nursing home. And it was becoming a little bit of a racket. So that's just a question to ask. And this is a big one. How are behaviors handled? Like agitation, refusals, anger, or aggression. And ask multiple staff this question. And make sure you're not saying it in front of the administrator or the tour guide. Because the staff may give you the company response and not really a good answer. If all you hear is redirection and distraction, that's not enough. That's like hiring someone to put in a bathroom or renovate a room in your house. And you say, what tools do you use? And they say a Phillips screwdriver and a hammer. That's great. But if I have someone remodeling my bathroom, they better know how to lay tile, cut tile, they, may, they, they need to have plumbing tools. They need to be able to do the whole thing. Otherwise, I'm not hiring you. So when I hear distraction and redirection and that's it, I feel very sad because that's not adequate. Optimal responses would address prevention. You want to ask, how do you prevent these behaviors? If the response is, oh, we, you can't prevent these behaviors. Nope, they don't know what they're doing. You also want to pay attention to the physical environment because the physical environment can trigger behaviors. Are the residents crowded around one dining room table? They're, they're, they're on top of each other, so they're getting each other upset and agitated. I personally am not a fan of cruises because I don't like to be crowded with people. And a lot of times when you go on some of these cruises and you want to 
go to the restaurant, they some of them you do have reservations, but other places everybody shows up at once and it's a zoo. I, I do not like being on top being on top of people. And if I had dementia and we were all sitting in this one room crowded around this one table, behaviors are going to escalate. You also want to pay attention. Are there TVs blaring in the background or music blaring? Is because that will trigger behaviors. If a particular resident is very loud or is vocalizing, how does the staff intervene? Ask about how knowledge of individual preferences and triggers are shared between staff members. Do they have a formal meeting where they have a huddle about the needs of this resident? Nursing homes have what's called care planning meetings where they're supposed to go over the care plan and adjust depending on the needs. Assistant living, some don't, but how, what's the plan of care for my family member and how is information shared and how is it updated? Because here's something that I actually address in one of my blogs, and I hate to say it, placing someone in care doesn't reduce caregiver burden, it just changes it up. So when you were the sole caregiver, you dealt with the stressors. When you decide to move your loved one into a facility, now you're dealing with different things. I know when my family member was placed and, and she was in a facility as part of her 90 days post-hospital, it was interesting because my, my phone never stopped ringing. Every time I turned around, they would call me about something. And it got to the point where I thought, does anybody know how to think in this facility. It was just really crazy. And you really want to also talk to the direct care staff about their knowledge of individual preferences and triggers and knowing the difference between a knee-jerk refusal and true autonomy. You also want to read the contract to see what happens with the behavior does it result in an automatic involuntary discharge where you were told you have X days and your family member has to leave? Is it an automatic transfer to Gerosyc? And here's another thing. The facility may refuse to readmit your loved one once they are transferred out. So look for language in the contract if this is something that could happen. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.